0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. It's important to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for the study of God's Word. In the church age, it is God the Holy Spirit who is the source of power and enablement in the spiritual life. He is the one who illuminates our thinking, helps us to understand the Word of God, and he is the one who is uh, the focal point in our relationship with God during this church age. And we are to walk, are to worship, as Jesus said, by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. And so when we sin, that relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, is temporarily breached until we confess sin, which time it is recovered and we can move forward. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. So, let's bow our heads together. Father, we're thankful we can come together to be refreshed by your word, to be encouraged in our study of 1 Thessalonians, and to dig into the things that you would have us to learn, and to think about how the Apostle Paul faces the opposition that he encounters to the gospel and how he handles the slander, the lies, the distortions, the attacks that have come his way, which is what we see in this first part of chapter 2. Help us to understand how these principles apply in our own lives as we may face the same kind of opposition. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in First Thessalonians. We are in the second chapter of First Thessalonians. I have taught on the first three verses, but this is a reminder that this is not a normal series where I have t- taught it week after week after week. What happens is that I am teaching this as a series to use when I am out of town, when I'm sick, when some situation arises when I just can't be here, maybe at the last minute, and I need to have, um, we need to have Bible class. So this is not a continuous study. In fact, the last two lessons that we taught were taught in December of 2015. So now it's May of 2018. So it's it's been uh, two and a half years, and so I'll do a little review before we get started. What I'm titling this lesson is Priorities for Pastors: colon, Approved by God. Ultimately, a pastor is accountable to God, and when we think of this word that is used here twice, the forms of this word are used in verse four, having to do with being approved by God, and Paul using that uh, as as a criteria for his ministry this is this is fundamental uh, in terms of his uh, his accountability, that he is accountable to God, and therefore that that is what undergirds his integrity as an apostle, his integrity as as a minister. And that has great application uh, for all of us because ultimately we are not to live our lives, we're not, not to work at our jobs as men-pleasers. We are there to serve the Lord by serving in that capacity. And the same thing is true for pastors. So ultimately it is not the pastor's job to seek approval from the sheep, but approval from God. And so we're going to look at this. But first, a little bit of review in First Thessalonians 2.1. So, in 1 Thessalonians 2.1, we read, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, in much conflict. Okay, first thing, first point in terms of our review is that in this first verse of chapter 2, Paul asserts that they themselves know that they're coming, which implies they're teaching and proclamation. They're just not on vacation. They're not just traveling. They are coming to teach the Word of God, to proclaim the gospel, And this is made clear in the term exhortation in verse 3, that it was not without meaning, purpose, or result. It had borne the fruit of their salvation and their spiritual growth. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 9, he writes, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, so he's really emphasizing what is happening in their lives. that it, There's been a transformation in their lives, and that is part of the evidence of the credibility of the apostolic ministry. And so, when this first line he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And that word is a word, kinos. It's used a number of times by Paul. And it refers to something that is meaningless. It's empty. It has no value. It has no worth. And it's the opposite of a word that means something that is significant, important, something that is full. It can refer to, for example, an empty wineskin or a full wineskin. It can be, uh, refer to the opposite of something being filled, uh, with the, with the word, uh, plerao would be the opposite. And so this is something that is meaningless. It has no value. It has no, uh, no significance whatsoever and has no result or impact. So he is emphasizing this and this is true for anybody who is a, a pastor or a Bible teacher or a minister who is legitimate, who is focused on teaching the Word because we know that the power is in the Word of God and we have to understand what the Word of God says because it is uh, the Word of God that has been breathed out by God, and it is the Word of God that has uh, power. And so uh, we teach the Word of God. And if a pastor is teaching the Word of God, there are going to be three results that will be obvious in any group. First of all, people will be saved. People will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It may be a few, it may be... Uh, maybe more. It just depends on the culture, the congregation, the background, things like, uh, like that. I have had over the years a number of people who have come and who have been saved, and I, I had no idea until maybe some years later when they told me that. So, the, it is the Word of God, though, that uh, presented accurately has an impact in saving, uh, people spiritually. Second, it will produce spiritual growth. People will learn the Word and they will grow uh, spiritually. And I always enjoy receiving emails from people that will tell me how much certain lessons have uh, impacted them and how they have grown and matured uh, under this ministry. That is a great source of encouragement. And the third thing that results from the teaching of the Word is spiritual service. Spiritual service is not the cause of spiritual growth. It is a natural consequence of spiritual growth. That is... People grow and mature. They want to serve the Lord. And here there are opportunities to serve the Lord, teaching in Sunday school. Other people serve the Lord just in terms of some administrative things that they do, volunteering in different aspects. Other people serve the Lord singing in choir. Uh, some people serve the Lord going to, uh, for example, Camp Arete and serving, serving there during the summer. And I hope sometime that we have opportunities to take groups on short-term uh, missions trips. But that's one of the ways in which uh, the Lord is served. And spirit, as a result of spiritual growth, um, we see those th- three results, salvation, spiritual growth, and spiritual service. Now, Paul has seen these consequences. Whenever you see these consequences, when the Word of God is having an impact in people's lives, then one of the things that frequently happens is opposition, especially if you're going into a new area where there's never been the truth. There, the the angelic conflict gets focused at that point, and there are those who are holding to lies, holding to false doctrine, worshiping idols, because this is what has happened in in Thessalonica, is that they have turned from God, uh, excuse me, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and this angered a lot of people. It angered Gentiles who were idol worshippers, and on the other hand. It angered, as we know from the background studies in Acts, as we've looked at, it angers the the Jewish community because they had made an idol out of the law, out of the Torah, which is still very much part uh, of Judaism today. And so they attacked the messenger. They attacked Paul, and they had many false charges against him. They accused him of doing it uh, only for money, that they were just trying to become wealthy off of this, that they were uh, deceiving people. They had all these different charges brought against him. And this was not new for Paul. He had to uh, defend his apostleship to the corinthians both in first the first epistle to the corinthians and in the second epistle to the corinthians and so we ought to look at this in terms of solving a problem we have our spiritual skills that we talk about otherwise they've been referred to as problem solving devices or problem solving skills that god gives us so paul is facing a problem a people test Opposition to the word, opposition to, to the truth, and these lies that are told about him. And often what happens if we're victims of gossip, we're victims of lies and slander, that we take it personally. But I want you to notice that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is so focused on the gospel is what matters to Paul is its impact on the gospel presentation, its impact on the gospel truth, and whatever the, the consequences of that might be are really his focus. He is not really focused on the fact that his feelings have been hurt or that he has been treated unjustly. It is always all about the gospel. And so one of the things that we have to learn is how does Paul deal with this? What are the doctrinal methods that we've studied in terms of spiritual skills that are brought to bear on his his opposition as he's dealing with that? One of the things that he does in these first 12 verses is he brings people back to his life as he was serving among them. And what is important about that is that brings into perspective uh, two words that we see used. Actually, it's uh, these two words that are used in chapter 4. They're forms of the root word. And the root word comes from the noun dokimas, or dokimazo is the verb. And it has a couple of different forms here. But what it refers to is approval. And whenever we see these words, it immediately should bring to our mind that there's future accountability to God. We're serving God. And so ultimately the way in which we handle, uh, any kind of opposition, slander, lies and everything is to bring it back to the, to the gospel and that eventually there's accountability, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's, that's what Paul is going to, is going to be bringing out. Out here. And so, as part of this, he refers to the way in which he served them. See, he's serving them at that point because of his long-term understanding of the, the, uh, God's destiny for them. So that's a form of our personal sense of eternal destiny. And I want you to notice as you Uh, Read through these 12 verses how many times Paul refers back to what they witnessed in terms of his ministry, what they knew about his ministry, his personal relationship with them. For example, in verse 1 he says, As you yourselves know. In uh, verse 2 he says, As you know. Then in verse 5, again he says, As you know. Then in verse 5 he said, God is witness. In uh, verse 6, he said, "...we did not seek glory from men or from you or others." He's appealing to them. Remember, we, we weren't there to to glorify ourselves. We weren't trying to gain attention for ourselves. Uh, in verse 7, he says, "...we were gentle among you." So he keeps going back to their frame of reference of his ministry when he was there. In verse 9, he says, "...for you remember..." Verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. And then in verse 11, again, for the third time, he comes back and says, as you know. So, he's constantly referring back to that uh, testimony that he had when he was in their presence and was ministering uh to them. So, he's telling them and reminding them that, that his ministry... And their witnesses of it It was not in vain. It wasn't worthless. And we see the use of that word, uh, "kinos" several times in the New Testament. It has this idea usually of just a a wasted time, a wasted life, something that had no impact and, and no significance. For example, Paul uses it three times. In 1 Corinthians 15, now remember 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection to the Christian life. It's the great resurrection chapter in verse 10. Paul says, "...but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." See, it's the same idea. God's grace has an impact. It's not empty. It's It transforms our lives. And so that's what Paul is referring to. The grace of God was when Jesus appeared to him when he was on the road to Damascus. And at that point, he clearly understood the gospel. And Jesus says, why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, why are you kicking, uh, constantly resisting all of the all of the gospel presentations, all of the testimonies that you've heard and, and and have witnessed, why are you constantly resisting that? And so then Paul responds uh, in in faith. So God's grace wasn't just emptiness in his life, and he refers back to what he had done before that he had labored more abundantly than everyone, but that didn't count. It was God's grace which was with me that made the difference. In First Corinthians fifteen fourteen, he talks about the content of our faith and the foundation of our faith, and that is the resurrection. That without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. It is the Latin phrase is sine qua non, and is without which nothing. And it means and it refers to something that is indispensable. And if it's removed then you just don't have anything. So the resurrection is central to our proclamation, and that word refers to the proclamation of the gospel. And then if there's no um, no resurrection, then our faith is also empty. And then the third use in 1 Corinthians 15 is in verse 58, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding... "...in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord." And that is referring to your spiritual service, that it is not something that is just empty and meaningless. But if we are steadfast in our spiritual walk, staying in relationship with the Holy Spirit, growing to spiritual maturity, then whatever we do counts for eternity. In 2 Corinthians uh, 6.1... He says, We then as workers, together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So don't just uh, uh, ignore it. or Receive it in a way and believe the Scriptures, and then you will go forward. So, This is what is being said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It produced a transformation that was caused by the content of the gospel. He uses the word again in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. He sent a messenger. He had left Thessalonica. He was only there for two or three months at the most. And he left and he went from there to Varia, or, or, Berea as it's, uh, anglicized. He goes to Varia and then he went down to Athens and then he has to send back because he had left his co-workers Timothy and Titus back there in Thessalonica and he wants to find out what's happening because he had basically gotten run out of town because there was such opposition from the Jews in the synagogues to what he was, what he was doing. So he sent to know how they were doing. They were a young church, young believers, how have they survived since he last left? Have they fallen prey to the tempter, who is the devil? He says, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But it was not, and they were growing and they were maturing, and they had questions for him to clarify clarify their faith. All of that is just a first review that Paul had had a significant impact in the ministry there. Then we come to verse 2. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And so here he refers to the suffering, the persecution, the arrest that had occurred when he was in, and, be, and being beaten the, in, in, in Philippi. But he says, despite this opposition and the hostility and the persecution and the physical uh, abuse, he said, uh, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much Conflict. So the second thing that point that he makes is that he reminds them that they had endured. That is, uh, Paul and Titus, I mean Paul and Silas, uh, had endured tremendous uh, rejection, hostility, and suffering as they proclaimed their message. What they would not have done if they had been frauds. They would not have stayed in that ministry and gone through all of that suffering, they would have left uh, much earlier. So this goes to his appeal to their character and their ministry, and the reason that they are ministering is because he has his eye on the long game, not only their eternal salvation, but their future destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So that's why I say, that what is motivating his ministry is this understanding of the long game. That is our spiritual skill, our problem-solving device. So that is what will come into play whenever we are facing opposition in our spiritual life. Just to remind you, we have this map here of Greece. Uh, Achaia is the lower area. Sparta is down here in the south. Achaia is the central area. And then in the north, we have, uh, Macedonia. And the yellow line that you see going from, uh, east to west horizontally is the, um Ignatian Way. This is main east west thoroughfare that, that Paul would have traveled. And if you go to Greece, you can still see, uh, sections of this that are still there. It's a, maybe about six feet wide. And it's, uh, it has stone at the bottom. It's pretty rough now, but it would have had to have been much smoother earlier to have wheeled vehicles. But we see that both Philippi, Philippi and Thessalonica are on this via Ignatia, the Ignatian way, and, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonica is about 40 miles to the west of, of Philippi. And on that second missionary journey, Paul had come in and he'd gone to Neapolis and actually had his ministry. This is Acts 16 where he's arrested in Philippi. And from there he went to, uh, he went to Thessalonica. It talks about that they were bold, they had confidence that even despite opposition, they continued, uh, to proclaim the word and to teach the word. The third point that he is making here is that his life was an example to others, believers, on how to face life's challenges with spiritual courage and boldness because they understand what that eternal destiny is. So whether the opposition is some sort of overt, organized persecution, or whether it is just people who are slandering and lying about you, keeping your eye on the end game, your eternal destiny, allows us to live with joy and happiness today and proclaim the gospel uh, with courage and boldness. But it's dependent upon having the Word of God in our soul, so Paul faces this this situation with humility and that's grace orientation, so in Philippi, he is uh, 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 imprisoned, but I want you to notice that he just doesn 't roll over i mean he 's not becoming the doormat for those who are in opposition. He just doesn 't sit there with his pious look on his face and just you know do what to, to me what you will he is a very strong individual and he is going to uh, go to the lord in prayer he is going to have great joy as he and uh, silas are in the jail they're going to sing hymns to the glory of god uh, while they are there in the in the jail overnight and then God miraculously is going to deliver them. So there's a couple of lessons that we learned from that, and you might want to turn with me in your Bible to Acts 16 and we will just review uh, briefly what happened when they went uh, when they were arrested and they were put in prison in in Acts 16. If I can find the chapter. Okay, first thing we notice as we look at this episode is that Paul's focus is on the gospel and his Christian testimony, that he is not focused on the opposition in terms of his own personal suffering. He's not whining personally. He's not um, angry. He's not in a mode of retaliation. He is relaxed because he know God, knows that God is in control and he is applying the word to his life. He understands God has a plan and a purpose for him so he can relax uh, in the situation. We see him uh, stating the principle in Second Corinthians 10, uh, 17 and 18, the same way he has been rehearsing some of the uh various types of persecution suffering hostility that he has met in his in his apostolic ministry and at the end he says but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's our mental attitude. We're not glorying in ourselves. A ministry is not about me. It's not about my success. It's not about how many people that the Lord gives me, how few people, how many people, how large a church, how small a church, whatever. It is to faithfully serve the Lord with whomever the Lord brings uh, into my life. And if there's going to be opposition and persecution then that means that the Lord has a testimony that He's developing in me for some reason in some purpose. So it's not for me to glory in my ministry, but to glory in the Lord. Ultimately, for Paul, he points out it's always about the Lord. And then in verse 18, he says, For not he who commends himself is approved. So if you're... Always focusing on how great your ministry is, how large it is, talking about all the positive things that God is doing, then you're in a way, you're in a way commending yourself, and as opposed to the Lord. And so the issue here is, is approval. And that brings in the word that we're gonna see in 1st Thessalonians 2, 4, uh, 2-4, and that is Dakimas, or in 1st Thess 4, it's the verb form, dokimazo, But here it's uh, document, it's an adjective and it means approval uh, or something that is excellent or something that has passed inspection and therefore it is accepted. For not he who commends himself is approved. And that usually refers to the judgment seat of Christ, that at the judgment seat of Christ this will not accrue uh, to gold, silver, and precious stones, to rewards, but only to the loss of rewards. Uh, the one who is approved is the one who the Lord commends because of what the Lord is doing in their what the Lord is doing in their life. So uh, we see the hint of where we're going in First uh, Thessalonians two four. Uh, second thing that we see here is that Paul doesn't take advantage of the miraculous release. That occurs when the angels uh, ap- uh, appear, and 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 the chains come off, and they are they are 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 freed. And so this is described in Acts chapter 16 verse t- uh, 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So it's a great testimony. We ought to ask you, how many hymns could you sing if you were thrown in jail? How many hymns could you sing from memory? I always remember reading um, reading a, a book about a Vietnam War era prisoner of war, talking about how the men in the in the prison Vietnamese prison camp would piece together the bits and pieces of verses that they could remember. They figured out codes where they could use like Morse code to tap out things. And One guy would remember part of a verse. Another guy would remember part of a verse. They would put things together. And same thing for for hymns. So, but Paul and Silas have learned hymns. This is part of walking by the Spirit. We should know our hymns. We should be able to sing hymns without our hymnal, because we know them. So suddenly there's a great earthquake. Foundations of the prison are shaken immediately. The doors are open. All the chains are loose. All these prisoners could escape, but Paul doesn't take advantage of that. But he extends grace because he knows that if they all leave, the the, uh, jailer is going to be held accountable and face the death penalty. That was what the situation was in the Roman Empire. So the keeper of the prison is awakened in the midst of this, and he runs to make sure the prisoners haven't escaped. He just knows they've escaped, and then, uh, and he, so he's gonna kill himself. But Paul stopped him in verse 28, and then, uh, he, the, the, uh keeper of the prison called for a light and went in and fell down. And he's trembling before Paul and Silas. He's scared to death because he knows that his life is in danger. And he cries out to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then we have Paul's succinct answer in terms of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. In other words, all your family can be saved. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to them. They explained the gospel to him, and the gospel is succinctly just believe. It's not believe and have works that are consistent with your belief. It is simply believe. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are saved, and we immediately are born again. We are immediately a new creature in Christ. We are immediately uh, re- we immediately receive the imputation of righteousness. God declares us justified, and we have eternal life that can never be taken. No, away from us. But the succinct gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So, after he believes, he takes Paul and Silas to his house. They treat their wounds from having been uh, whipped and flagellated. And he and his family are then baptized. We don't know uh, where they were baptized. We do know there's a small river that runs through Philippi. It could have been right by their house, and they just took him, uh, went right there, and were baptized. And uh, then the next day, uh, they're going to wait. And this is what's so interesting is how Paul handles this. He doesn't just say, okay, we'll leave town. He is going to force the issue in a gracious way but he's going to force the issue because he wants the opposition to know that they just can't walk all over him and just take advantage of him because he indeed is a Roman citizen. And one of the laws related to Roman citizens is they are not to be whipped. They are not to be flogged. And so the next day, the magistrates, uh, having awakened, known about the uh, earthquake during the night, uh, sent officers and they were going to just let them go. They figured they had learned their lesson, let the men go. And But the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, and Paul said, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul says, They've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. We weren't even afforded a, a, a fair trial. They've thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? He say, basically what he's saying is they're not going to get away with this. There has to be accountability. And so he says, let them come themselves and get us out. And so when the officers were told this in verse 38, they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. They just didn't listen. They didn't give them the opportunity to defend themselves at all the night before. So they came, they pleaded with them, asked them to depart from the city. So this is the suffering that Paul's referring to here. But he treats even his opponents with grace, but he holds them to accountability. Now, the third thing, or point C, that I'm bringing out here is that by application we can find ourselves uh, mistreated, We can be legally mistreated. We can be legally uh, held account, and that could very well happen in this country with the rise of such hostility to Christianity, especially in some uh, very, very liberal parts of this country. Uh, There are many people, even in government, that don't know any evangelical Christians, any saved Christians. They've never known them. Uh, A number of years ago now, it's been about 12 years we were on a first trip to Israel, and there was a film crew along with us, and they were all from Boston, and they just simply made the comment that they wanted to uh, film Christians because and understand their their uh, support for Israel, because in their lives they didn't know any conservative evangelical Christians, and this was a major issue at the time when. Uh, Uh, George W. Bush was president, but that's the point is there are these enclaves of people in liberal bastions in California, in Washington State, Oregon, mostly along the coast, New York, Boston, Connecticut... They have no content, contact with anyone that is a Bible-believing Christian, and so they just have believed a lot of lies and misrepresentations and caricatures of Christians, and as a result, they're uh, they're they're prone to to even increasing uh, that slander, and so we may eventually and even in this country, face legal persecution. And that's happened with some people who've taken stands in their business against serving cakes or or being photographers at homosexual uh, weddings. We may be personally defamed. Uh, It may be family members who are hostile to us as Christians. So how do we handle that? We have to understand our personal sense of our eternal destiny, where we're headed eventually. And we handle this opposition with grace and humility. So that brings to bear two of those spiritual skills, grace orientation and a personal sense of our eternal destiny. And as they apply that, as we see Paul and Silas apply this, there's no anger, there's no retaliation that takes place. Everything is oriented to ultimately the message of the gospel and the salvation of those uh, who may be around. And as a result of that, Paul had a tremendous opportunity to uh, Give the gospel to the Philippian jailer and to his family and there were probably many others who through the Philippian, the witness of the Philippian jailer and his family also came to know and understand, uh, understand the gospel. So when we handle this opposition on the basis of grace, humility, personal sense of our eternal destiny, it opens the door to opportunities to give the gospel. If we retaliate in anger, and bitterness, then we feel pretty foolish if then uh, we get the opportunity to give the gospel because we we've discredited ourselves already, so we see a positive example here with Paul now the fourth thing in terms of um, in terms of review in the second part of verse two is points out that Paul's their their past failure, that is their past suffering, didn't minimize their boldness and courage. So even though they faced this opposition in Philippi, when they came to Thessalonica, they weren't hindered. They didn't say, well, we don't want to upset the ruling class. We don't want to upset the Jews. We don't want to create a problem. Uh, We'll just back off a little bit. And maybe just go into people's private homes. They didn't do that at all. They went to the synagogue. They taught in the synagogue. Then, then there were those Jews who became hostile to them and, uh, kicked them out. And, but there were others who believed and they developed a ministry to them. So they continued to be bold because they understood God's plan and purpose for their life. So this leads us into verse 2 but he, where he says, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. And they don't water, water it down. This is what happened in Galatia. This is what all of Galatians is about. The Judaizers who were uh, Jews who were hostile to the gospel wanted the Christians to obey the law for salvation as well as for sanctification. And so they wanted them to water down and change the gospel. But Paul's not going to water down or change the gospel or make it any less offensive to those who uh, might take uh, some form of offense. And so they are bold, but it is in conflict. And that is something we should expect as Christians is when we take a stand for the truth, take a stand for for the gospel, that there may be opposition and there may be great conflict, especially as we see where our world is headed uh, today. Then we looked at verse 3, where Paul reminded them of the the basis for what he taught. He says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. And the word that he uses here for exhortation is the word paraklesis, from the verb oh to be encouraged, to comfort, to encourage. But here it has a broader sense, and it's related to the message that they had brought, the message of the gospel. And so their exhortation was to challenge people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their, for their salvation. And that is what the pastor is supposed to do. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy that he's to do the work of an evangelist. That although the pastor doesn't have the gift of evangelism, uh, necessarily, he is to present the gospel all the time. He's to do the work of the evangelism, and it's it, it doesn't come from a place of mixed motives. He's not teaching error. Uh, he's not teaching some sort of false doctrine. Uncleanness has the uh, connotation some passage of some sort of of uh, sexual impurity, and it's not deceitful. He is to be open and honest and clear. On the gospel and not compromise it in any uh, any particular way at all. Now, if we look at verse three uh, in the English, at least in the New King James Version, verse three ends in a period. It doesn't end. In, end the sentence doesn't end in the Greek text. Uh, it's clear. Greek text doesn't have punctuation. I mean, modern Greek texts have punctuation, but the original did not have punctuation like we do. But we can punctuate it because of the way Greek grammar uh, Greek grammar works. So you can tell where the sentence breaks are. And and one of the one of the uh, characteristics of the King James version when it was translated was to try to make every verse a standalone sentence. Now some places they just couldn't do it, but they tried to break these these complex sentences of Paul down into uh, single sentences. Actually, in the Greek text, verses 3 and 4 are the same sentence. And Paul is explaining uh, how they were bold and and why they were bold in the gospel. In verse 2, he says, For our exhortation... Did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So the positive statement that he is making is in the it is in verse four. Now, here's sort of a phrase. Breakdown of verses three and four. In verse three, he is talking about what wasn't part of their, um, uh, of their motivation. And we see these words, not, nor, nor, uh, and so he's saying it's not from deception, not from impure motive, not from deceit, but as we've been examined by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's the beginning of the fourth verse. And he says, so we speak, and then again we have a negative, not as those who please people, but now expressing the positive, those who please God, the one who examines our hearts. So the positive statement that he is making is that we have been entrusted with the gospel as members of the body of Christ, followers of Jesus, those who have trusted in Him for salvation have been entrusted with the gospel. This takes us back to an understanding of what is called the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19 and 20, where Jesus uh, commissions the apostles uh, to make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism... Is what was normally done after people got saved. We just saw it in Acts sixteen. As soon as the Philippian jailer uh, believes, this Gentile is baptized, uh, and and uh, it happened right right then. So. Baptism signifies evangelism. So part one is we witness, we explain the gospel, people respond, they're baptized, it doesn't mean that they're, that doesn't save them at all, it is just a visual aid for understanding positional truth. And then the second thing is by teaching everyone to obey all that I command. That's the Great Commission. Evangelism and teaching. And so the lion's share of the ministry is on, to, to believers is about teaching Uh, teaching the word. And so this is the foundation here. We've been examined by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So this idea of the exhortation would be not only inclusive of the gospel, but also uh, what came afterwards. And it didn't come from error. Uh, They're not distorting anything. It's not some sort of uh a uh, personal uh, con job that Paul's involved in in order to fool money people and get their money. Uh, but nevertheless, they got opposition. And we look at, I've got a couple of verses here to show you how many times Paul faced opposition. In 2 Timothy one twelve, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He writes this when he's in the maritime dungeon in Rome, and he is a prisoner for the gospel. He is in chains for the gospel, and that's what he is suffering. So he's now at a point where he's facing opposition from Nero and the Roman government. In 2 Corinthians uh, 2.17, Paul says, "...for we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God." This was something that came up quite a few times, is Paul would be accused of doing this for money. And often he would go to places because that was cl- uh, the claim. He would work for a living. He was a tent maker. He would organize some other tent makers, and they would go into business. And he would work at that so that he would not be dependent on the church. There's a whole chapter uh, in First Corinthians where he defends that, but he says others do it a different way, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's nothing wrong. In fact, he says in Second in, uh, Timothy that a worker is worthy, of, a workman is worthy of his hire and that a pastor is worthy of double honor. And the word that he uses there is a word that refers to pay, to income, and that a, a pastor who labored well should be paid twice as much as anybody else. That was the standard that he, that he said. But he chose uh, not to be a burden to, to a local congregation. He said this in many places. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and following, he is also emphasizing this. He says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame in Corinth. The Corinthians were constantly attacking the credibility of Paul and uh, his legitimacy. and He was constantly having to defend himself to the uh, Corinthians. But he doesn't do it out of a personal motive. He does it because he wants the gospel to be clear And he doesn't want anything to detract from the gospel ministry. So there he says, but we have uh, renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So he's saying we are honest in the way we handle the word of God. We're not trying to deceive anybody. We're not trying to take advantage of anybody financially. Uh, but we believe that just manifesting the truth uh, commends us to everyone, and your conscience will understand that. It's very interesting because uh, an example of this occurred just yesterday uh, here in Houston. It's in uh, May of eighteen, and we just had a, a runoff in a primary between two Republican candidates, and one of the candidates had a there was a, a po- political action committee that was funding a tremendous amount of attack ads on the other candidate now this candidate who was the source of these attack ads on the other guy had actually accumulated the most votes in the uh, in the primary and this was a runoff and his his claims against the other candidate were just getting outlandish. I mean, he accused him of some some of the most extreme things, and it got to the point where people just didn't believe that anymore. If he had just said a few things, maybe people would have believed it, but day after day, you just got these attack ads in the mail, and people realized that he didn't have any credibility, because as they heard the answers from the other guy, without maybe taking a direct attack on his accuser, people understood that the guy doing the attacking was lying. And and that's the idea that Paul has here, is if we just teach the truth, then your conscience will recognize that and will validate it. That Understand that we're not doing it for our own gain. And that's what happened. In fact, the guy who was making all of these false claims and these attack ads uh, didn't get half of the votes that he got in the original primary, and he lost by almost a vote of three to one, so it became obvious to more and more people that these attacks just couldn't be true, and they were made up, and he lost all of his credibility. Well, see, that's what Paul's dealing with here is that if you just focus on the truth, then it will be evident to people. And verse 3 says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, it's not about us, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. It's all about Jesus, it's all about the gospel, it is not about us. That's his focal point. In Second Corinthians 12, now I mentioned that I read verse 17 earlier, and he defends himself. He says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you financially. I didn't come and ask you for money. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. There he's being sarcastic. Did I take advantage of you by, by any of those whom I sent to you? See, wasn't I smart? I was so cunning. I didn't ask you for money. I didn't ask you to support the people I sent to you, Timothy and Titus. Uh, they didn't take advantage of you. They just taught you the truth. Wasn't that crafty? That's the sarcasm that's there. So he was being accused of that. So what this does is it emphasizes that that we are to uh, focus on um, God's... Approval. This is the focal point of the uh, growth in the in the church. Um, Ephesians four fourteen. The goal of teaching in the in the local church is that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That's what the false teachers were doing, and Paul is showing that he doesn't follow that. Uh, that mentality so in verse 2-4 it says but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel even so we speak not as pleasing men but God who tests our heart now the noun form I just put over here on the left side so you would see that that's the uh, word that we saw earlier in 2nd Corinthians uh, chapter chapter 12 or chapter 10 excuse me but the verb is used here twice. The first time is we have been approved. It's a perfect tense verb, which means it's action that occurred and completed in the past. When did God do this approval? He did this when they're commissioned as apostles when they are to begin uh, teaching, teaching the word. They had been approved at the beginning to be entrusted with the gospel. That was part of their mission. Going back to the great commission in matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty, but they're entrusted with the Gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men see he 's not there to have all the great sermons, their oratory, the rhetoric, not to entertain people. This is just what happens in so many churches today, and that's not the point. In fact, that just shows that they're—if they're not false teachers, because some of them do get the gospel right, and some of them, as shallow and superficial as they are, it's—it's it's still basically true. It's just that that they're pleasing men. They're not pleasing God. They're not carrying out the task that God has assigned to the pastors and uh, that is teaching the gospel and teaching people to grow uh, to spiritual maturity. So Paul says we're not to speak as pleasing men, but God who tests. And there's that second use of docimazo, and it's a present active participle. It's a it 's a relative clause, God is characterized as the one who proves, who tests, who evaluates our hearts, our thinking, He understands our motivation, he understands why we 're doing what we 're doing, and that is to to serve him. Uh, the noun is used in passages like first corinthians eleven nineteen um, which I always thought was a very interesting verse that there should be factions among. there should be divisions in the church. Why? Because it shows who are approved. It shows who are true, who are honest with the word. Second uh, 2 Timothy two fifteen, we're to be diligent to present ourselves approved under God, evaluated and commended by God. James uses the word blessed is the man who endures testing, for when he has been approved, when he passes the test, he'll receive the crown of life. So it's all of this approval always focuses on uh, the judgment seat of Christ in the future. The verb is used in Romans 12:2 that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may prove, that we may test, evaluate the, what the will of God is. It's 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 long term and its and its focus. 1 Corinthians 3.13 is the key one because this talks about the uh, judgment seat of Christ, that at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, it's only for believers, it's not for unbelievers. Each one's work, that is our service to the Lord, will become clear for the day. will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test. That's our word documazo again. It's a positive term. It's to reveal what is positive, not to expose what's negative and so it's always oriented to that which is productive and going forward so that's the judgment seat of Christ there uh 1 Timothy 2 uh 1st Thess 2:4 our passage um emphasizes that this is looking at something a long-term evaluation uh by God it's related to self-examination. The verb is used here uh, for self-examination. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. So that's not talking about are you a believer. That is, are you walking consistent with the, the word of God and the doctrine that you have learned? So we're to constantly examine ourselves to make sure we're walking in the truth. Galatians six four let each one of you examine his own work. So we are to be involved in using the Word of God to self-evaluate. Uh, we're to test all things. That's discernment. 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.21, uh, test all things, not to seek what's bad, but to seek that which is good, and to hold fast with that which is good. And in 1 Corinthians 11.28, in the Lord's table, we're to examine ourselves. Uh, that leads to confession, if necessary, before we partake of the Lord's table. Ultimately, what we learn uh, when we look at this is for the pastor, as Paul talks about, for the apostle, we are to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that they build a large church. Is that what it says? No. That they should, uh, become wealthy in the ministry. No, doesn't say that. Uh, that they should be, um, leading hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord. Doesn't say that. Moreover, it's required in stewards that they be found faithful. That God has given every pastor, every one of us, some finite amount of ability. And we're to be faithful with the talents that God gave us and what how He has gifted us in order to serve Him. And when He evaluates us, He's going to evaluate us in terms of have we been faithful. He's not going to be saying, well, you only led ten people to the Lord, but somebody over here led ten thousand, so you don't get anything. Are you faithful with what God has given you? And for pastors and teachers, that is the mission is to equip the saints for the work of service and building up or edifying the body of Christ. That is the pastor's mission. Next time we'll come back and further develop uh, what Paul says about the ministry in verses 5 through 8. Father, thank you for this time that we may be challenged and understand the pastoral priority that we are to be faithful in our service to you. And that means faithfully teaching Your word, for that is the only way in which uh, believers grow and mature. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.